great to be together, to worship together. Don't you just feel God in this room today? It's, it's amazing. And I'm so glad that you're here with me, with us, worshiping together. Grab your full-page outline as we get into part four of this series, Each Other. You know, as toddlers, um, we want to walk on our own. As children, we want to do things on our own. As teenagers, we want to make our own choices. As young adults, we want to get out on our own. As adults, we want to make our own lives, live our own lives. Being independent is something everyone pursues. One online blogger says this, you need to be independent in order to survive in the world. At the end of the day, you only have yourself to fall back on. And yet, as Jesus followers, we are called to do life differently. We are called to do life together. In fact, Jesus told his closest followers, I give you a new commandment. Read it with me. Love each other as I have loved you. Let's read it again. Love each other as I have loved you. So he gives us one commandment. And, and all too often we miss this, but, but the Apostle Paul didn't miss this. Throughout the New Testament, Paul explains this loving each other through all kinds of applications, dozens of applications. In fact, there are 58 different ways that we can love each other that the New Testament talks about. And it's not just the Apostle Paul, it's the Apostle Peter, it's the Apostle James, it's the Apostle John. They all include these ideas of how we're supposed to love each other. And so in this series, we've been walking through a couple of those ideas. For instance, in Galatians 5, Paul explained that we love each other by serving each other. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. If you've missed any of these uh, messages, you can get them on our podcast. You can get them on our website. In Ephesians 4, last week, we talked about how we um, are, are called to love each other by making allowances for each other. Today, I want us to look at Galatians 6 and what Paul really speaks into our lives as a church and as followers of Jesus. Take a look at it. Paul writes this, share each other's burdens and in this way, obey the law of Christ. Read it with me, would you? Share each other's burdens and in this way, obey the law of Christ. Now, at first glance, we read that and we think it's talking about helping each other, helping others, helping people. Helping a, a family who's in need with groceries or finances. Helping someone on the side of the road that has a flat tire and you see him broken down. Helping someone who just lost their job. Helping a cancer patient. Helping a homeless person. Helping a single mom. When we read Galatians 6-2, we naturally think that Paul is talking about helping others with the difficulties that they face in life. Now, obviously, this is a good thing. We are supposed to help other people. Would you just turn to your neighbor and just tell them we're supposed to help other people? Okay, we, we kind of know that, right? That's nothing profound. I mean, you, you can go throughout the New Testament and we see that Jesus talked about that even. That, that you know, we're, it's the right thing to do in helping each other. We should always help others when they face crisis, when they face difficulties. And we see that, um, I believe, so often that God puts us into situations where we're aware of someone else's difficulty or crisis because he wants us to be a part. He wants us to help them. He wants us to help, not, maybe not necessarily resolve the issue, but at least help them get through it. And so God wants to use us in this way. And the New Testament is full of passages that call us to help other people. But what Paul is describing in, in, in Galatians 6 is something else altogether. 
And I hope that you've got your seatbelt buckled today because this is a tough one. Um, I've been talking to several people this week about this study, and um, th this is a hard one for us to hear as a church. This is a hard one for us to hear as followers of Jesus because it gets really messy, and it involves us. Paul explains a responsibility that all Jesus followers have to each other in this passage. And what we're going to do, in order to understand verse 2, we're going to back up and read verse 1. Kind of makes sense to gain context that you would back up. So let's back up and see what Paul writes. Paul says, dear brothers and sisters. Now, Paul shows us that this is not a me thing, this is a we thing. Catch that? Let's say that together. This is not a me thing. This is a we thing. We are called brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church. Paul is specifically talking to those, speaking, writing to those who are a part of a local church. The church is a family. We are a family made up of brothers and sisters. Back in the day when I was growing up in church, we even called each other brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, just as a reminder that we were family, that we are family. Now, in our modern setting of church, we don't use those titles all that much. I mean, you know, if you have brothers and sisters in your family, you don't, you know, say, oh, brother Joe, you know, you just call him Joe, right? And so we're a little bit more modern in that, but we understand that we are called to be family in a local church. And Paul addresses when someone in the family falls into sin. Take a look. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin... Now, I, I want you to circle a couple of words. I want you to circle the word overcome on your outline, and I want you to circle the word sin. If another believer is overcome by some sin. It's interesting, this word sin. Paul uses a very interesting Greek word here, and this is what I want you to catch. This, this word in the original text is talking about a falling away, a lapse, a slip, a, a false step, or here's a good word, a mistake. Paul is, isn't referring to a lifestyle of sin. Paul isn't referring to habitual sins. There's a huge difference between falling into sin and living in sin. How many of you know that's true? There's a huge difference. But, but in this case, this is a Jesus follower who had been tempted and slips into sin, falls into sin makes a mistake. Paul isn't talking about someone, rather he is talking about someone who, who kind of tripped into a mud puddle. He isn't talking about someone who is wallowing around in the mud. Everybody follow that? He's talking about somebody who slipped and fell into this mud puddle and now this mud puddle has overwhelmed them and they can't get out. All of us know what this is like. I mean, come on, let's be real. We, we want to follow Jesus, but we face temptation. All of us do. Now, I'm not going to ask for you to share it with your neighbor, but would you just tell your neighbor, I face temptation too? Would you tell him that? It's true. We all face temptation to some degree or another in different levels than each other, in different areas than each other, but we all face temptation. And sometimes, if we're real honest, sometimes we fall. And we give in to temptation. We yield to temptation. And sometimes we can't get out on our own. We get stuck. 
That's when we need, all of us need, the thing that we all have a hard time with. We need accountability. And that is a tough word in our culture. You know why? Because we all want to be independent. But accountability calls us into community together. Accountability calls us to be a part of a group together. I believe that we miss so much in the church accountability for each other. We need accountability with each other. We need help from each other. And that's the time that I think we need the church the most. When we're struggling. When we're struggling with with a temptation, with a sin that is pulling us down, that is pulling us under, that is overwhelming us, that is the time that we need the church the most. We need help from other Jesus followers who care about us, to come alongside of us, and to help us. Keep reading with me. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are, what's that word? Godly. Now, I know we all kind of struggle with that because we don't really see ourselves as godly. So here's, I I want you to do something, and I don't think this is any disrespect to the scripture because the original text kind of goes along this line. I want you to cross out that word godly, and I just want you to write in one word, actually two words, it's a hyphenated word, spiritually minded. Because that's really what the original text talks about, spiritually minded. You who are spiritually minded. Paul is talking about someone who knows that they are a sinner saved by grace and wants to help others experience that same kind of grace. Paul is talking about someone who knows what God has done in their life and they have a desire to see that happen in someone else's life. They are spiritually minded. These are the ones who should take responsibility to go to a brother or sister who has been overcome by sin. And help them. Keep reading with me. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should, (laughs) and you know what we do is we fill in this blank. You who are godly should turn the other way and ignore the issue. Because that's what we're so good at doing. Or you who are godly should blow the whistle on them, confront them, and condemn them publicly. Make a public example of them so that no one else will do it. We're really good at that in the church too. But Paul doesn't write that. Look what Paul writes. You who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. The idea of tenderly restoring them back onto the right path. This is, this is where so many in the church get this wrong. And we have got this wrong for years. We, we either ignore the issue, we watch as sin destroys a person or a family, or we talk about them, and we gossip about them, and we tell everyone else about them. These are, these are the most unloving things that we can do to each other. Or, or also often when someone falls into sin, into temptation, we respond with judgment or criticism or condemnation, being too quick to point out the sin. What does that do? That only adds to the problem. Listen, it's not your job to be the sin police. 
It's not your job to be the prosecutor or the judge. We are called to restore, to help a person get back on the right path. Now, I'm not saying that we should treat sin lightly. I mean, we, we know this to be true. It costs Jesus his life on the cross. Sin is not something that is, is not serious. It is a serious issue, especially issue, a serious issue in people's lives. But, but when Jesus was given the opportunity to throw rocks, he could have condemned, he could have criticized, he could have made a public spectacle of this situation. In this scenario, he chose to forgive and restore, just like the woman caught with adultery, in adultery. Take a look in John 8. It says the teachers of religious law and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Don't miss that. I'm glad the kids are in kids' class because this is real life right here. Caught in the act of adultery. And they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? We are pointing our fingers. We are criticizing. We are condemning her. She has fallen into sin and she deserves to be stoned to death has to be dealt with. And so what does Jesus say? Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Now I gotta stop. I don't even have this in my notes. So Anthony, don't try to follow me here. I just gotta stop and say though, this is, this is the approach that I try to have with anyone else. Is realizing that I'm not perfect either. Realizing that I have sin in my life. Realizing that it could just as, easy be me, as easily be me in that situation. I am a sinner saved by grace. And that's what we've got to have in our mind, in our, in our perspective, in our paradigm. Seeing people like Jesus saw people. Look what he says. He says, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And Jesus said to her, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus says, neither do I. I'm not, I'm not condemning you. I'm not criticizing you. I'm restoring you. Go and sin no more. What a what a beautiful, beautiful image of tender restoration, not condemnation. We help others who struggle with sin. We help them get out when they get caught. Restoration is the goal, not condemnation. We can't say, that's not my problem. It's not my issue. It's not none of my business. I need to step away from this. I don't have to help in this. It's not my situation. No, we can't say that because Paul says, look what he says in verse 2. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. So what is this talking about? Mutual accountability. That's what it's talking about. Share each other's burdens. Mutual accountability. We need to be accountable to each other. Why is it, I, I asked myself this question this week, why is it that we find it so easy to help a person if they're in need because they're sick or they're unemployed or maybe they've lost a loved one or maybe they're lonely. But we find it so hard to help restore them when they've fallen into sin. Isn't sin the biggest issue? Sin is 
so much more harmful to a person than any other issue that they would face. And yet we hesitate to get involved. Watching out for each other. We can help each other deal with sin before it becomes a problem. Before it becomes a problem in their lives, in their family's life, in the life of a church. We can help them. Jesus told us that, you know, it's all about love, right? He said, love each other. And friends, this is as real as it gets, and it is not easy. (laughs) Getting involved in each other's lives, that's kind of messy, isn't it? As I was thinking about being involved in each other's messy lives and thinking about um, helping others who had fallen down, I got to admit, a story came to mind, and maybe it's already come to your mind, but it's the story that Jesus told, a parable that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. How many of you know that story? We probably all do. We probably are all very familiar with this. And and what's so interesting about a parable, if you don't know, a parable is is kind of a story that Jesus used and other people have used to, to make a point. And for Jesus, he's always trying to make a spiritual point. When he tells a parable, he's always trying to make a spiritual point. For instance, Jesus told about a farmer who sowed seed in different kinds of soil. And in that story, what Jesus even explains it, he was making the point that there are different kinds of soil, there are different kinds of hearts, so there are different kinds of receptivity to the whole idea of God and what God can do in a person's life. Uh, One time Jesus told about two builders. One built a house on sand and the other built a house on rock. Now we know that that's not a literal thing. It's It's not a practical thing. It's a spiritual story, right? Jesus isn't telling us to go build a house on a rock, right? How many how many of you know, right? He's talking about us building our lives on what he declares, what he teaches. That is the rock. Jesus told about a shepherd who lost sheep, and he left the 99 to go find the one. Jesus told about a son who went away from his father and then came back to his father. All of these things are not necessarily practical applications. They're spiritual points that Jesus is making. Everybody follow me on that? So so here's the interesting thing. With all the other parables that Jesus told, we interpret them as having spiritual applications. But then we come to the story of the Good Samaritan. And you know what we do with the Good Samaritan? We only make it a practical application. Well, Jesus is talking about helping people, so we need to help the homeless person on the road. We need to help the guy with the flat tire. We need to help the family who needs groceries. We interpret that only in a practical side. But in preparation for this study, I I felt like God was saying to me, there's two applications. Because remember, Jesus teaches parables for a spiritual point. So what is the spiritual point of the Good Samaritan story? What if we're supposed to interpret the story of the Good Samaritan as something spiritual? So instead of reading the story, I think I've got the text on your outline. If you'd like to follow along, that's fine. But instead of reading the story, I thought it would be really cool to watch this video that I came across regarding the Good Samaritan story. Let's take a look at it. In our impersonal world, no one wants to get involved in other people's lives. Jesus expects more from us. As followers of Jesus, we got to realize that 
that others are on the same road that we are. And sometimes they need help. We might, I, might not like getting involved in the lives of other people, but I want you to get this down. We must care enough to act when we see each other struggling spiritually. I'm not just talking practically helping people. We are all called to do that. That's just a humanity thing. But a Jesus thing is helping each other when we're struggling spiritually. Caring enough to act when we see each other struggling. We should refuse to leave them behind. They, they have fallen into sin. And, and friends, you've got to understand something. I believe there's almost a 0% chance of ever being healed without our help. We need, we need to help each other. We need each other. And, and the thing is that Satan knows this. The enemy of our soul knows this. So he tries to convince us that we don't need a church, that we don't need each other. He tries to fool us into thinking that we can be a follower of Jesus without the support of a church family. And Satan knows that there is strength and accountability in a church family. And so he works to isolate us from each other so that we will fall and never recover because there's no one there to help us when we need it. That is the importance of a church. And Paul says we are called to share each other's burdens as a church. I couldn't get past a situation that I was involved in several years ago. Where, where I learned something through failure. Several years ago, I blew it. I had a brother, a friend, who was going to church every Sunday without fail. And he came to me and began talking to me about sinful choices that he was making. He was sleeping with his girlfriend, single guy. And I, um, I don't know, for maybe to keep the friendship, to not mess things up, I don't know, to not get that involved, I don't, I don't know why. But I chose to not say anything. Later he came to me, never forget, showed up one day and was very concerned because he thought that his, his girlfriend was pregnant. Didn't know what to do. So we talked. Then I talked with him a little bit about the choices that he's making, but I, I got to be honest with you, I, did, I, didn't, I didn't push the issue. I was a friend, and I didn't, I didn't love him enough to cross that line. I should have. It wasn't too many weeks later, he came back to me and we were talking and he said, hey, I made sure that I'd never face that issue again. I went and got a vasectomy, so now I can sleep with her all the time and never have to worry about it. I didn't do what I was supposed to do as a brother. 
It wasn't too long after that that I vividly began to see the results of my negligence and my avoidance of the topic. And the relationship imploded, exploded in my life, in his life, in our relationship. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And I don't know if you have situations like that too, but that's just one that I, that I know of in my life, of several, where I look back on those things and I have regrets. I, I should have stepped in. I should, have, I should have addressed the issue with my friend in a gentle, humble way, pursuing restoration and I didn't. And I got to be honest, that one, of all the others, that one changed me. It, I, I decided, following that situation, I decided then to speak into the lives of those around me, not holding back anything. You know why? Because I care about them. And there have been times since that point, when I've spoken into the lives of people, and I don't do it with people that I don't know, I don't do it with people that I'm not close to, but those that I am close to, and there have been times that it has been rough and hard and messy and not easy. There have been times when they have taken offense at what I said. But you know what? There's always this coming back of saying, you know, Bart, I hear you now. They see that maybe you were right. Thank you for loving me enough to speak into my life. This is not easy. This, this has nothing to do with me being a pastor. This has everything to do with me being a brother in Christ. And you, a brother or sister in Christ. We are called to be family to each other. And what would family allow a brother or sister to lay on the road struggling in sin? I don't think so. We're called to be a church family who loves each other so much that we can't look the other way. When a brother or sister falls, we have to care. We have to care enough to act, to step in. Read it with me again, Galatians 6. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. Would you bow your heads with me?